Welcome to an exciting and innovative approach to the ongoing process of acquiring new knowledge, state-of-the-art concepts, and management strategies in contemporary cardiovascular disorders for physicians and allied health care personnel. Welcome to Perspectives in Cardiology. This is our first seminar in a monthly series of conundrums in clinical cardiology. The topic for this session is spontaneous coronary artery dissection, or commonly known as SCAD. This will be presented by Dr. Sharon Mulva from Halifax, Nova Scotia. Our co-moderator is Dr. Jacqueline Saw, an internationally recognized expert on SCAD. SCAD has emerged as an important etiology of a non-atherosclerotic acute coronary syndrome with a peculiar predilection for young women. Although this disorder in the last decade has been increasingly recognized, there are not a significant number of prospective studies to allow high-level evidence-based guidelines, recommendations in the acute and long-term management of SCAD. And consequently, a number of clinical conundrums surface for the cardiologist taking care of these generally otherwise well patients. A great deal of uncertainty arises on specific management issues, including associated fibromuscular dysplasia, role of PCI and dual antiplatelet therapy, post-SCAD recommendations for physical activities, and competitive sports, and in women, pregnancy-associated SCAD and future pregnancies. In addition, the approach to the common scenario of these patients post-discharge experiencing recurrent chest pain with ER visits and the potential role of stress imaging, CT angiography, and repeat cardiac catheterization demands clarification. I hope you enjoy this inaugural first session on CVD, no longer a man's disease, and aptly titled, Doctor, What Happened to Me? Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be kicking off this exciting Canadian Cardiovascular Society educational series with a very suitable conundrums topic, spontaneous coronary artery dissection, or SCAD. And what a conundrum it is. SCAD occurs primarily in women, and no one knows why. Indeed, over 90% of SCAD patients are women. It is estimated that SCAD accounts for 1% to 4% of all acute coronary syndromes, about 35% of the MIs occurring in women who are less than 50 years old, and is the most common cause of peripartum MI. The average age of SCAD patients is in the mid to late 40s to early 50s, although it's been seen in patients as young as in their teens and up to in their 70s. Most all patients present with chest pain, often in the absence of any or few traditional cardiovascular risk factors. The most common presentation is with a STEMI or non-STEMI, but malignant arrhythmias, cardiac arrest, or shock occur in up to 5% of presentations. The LAD is the most commonly affected coronary in up to half of cases, and usually it's the mid to distal vessels that are involved, but up to 4% can present with left main dissection. Although we have learned a lot over the past decade about SCAD, ongoing uncertainty, challenges, and controversies remain. So let's review five essential things to know about SCAD. First, SCAD can be tricky to diagnose. It isn't always obvious. That is why a high degree of clinical suspicion is essential, especially in a young female patient who has few or any cardiovascular risk factors. It should be high on our differential. What is SCAD? 
SCAD is an acute coronary syndrome without atherosclerosis. An intramural hematoma forms in the wall of the coronary artery, and this may or may not be associated with an intimal dissection flap. It is the pressure from the intramural hematoma that narrows or even occludes the lumen. SCAD is an angiographic diagnosis. Sometimes, though, it can be tricky to actually determine if it's present, requiring additional intracoronary imaging techniques, such as IVUS, or more preferably OCT, optical coherence tomography, to further evaluate indeterminate findings. Dr. Jackie Saw developed a classification scheme describing three angiographic patterns seen in SCAD. Type 1, the classic dissection appearance with multiple radiolucent lumina, which occurs only in about a third of patients. Type 2, a long, diffuse, smooth narrowing, which is the most common presentation, occurring in up to two-thirds of patients. And finally, type 3, which is very difficult to differentiate from the appearance of a typical atherosclerotic lesion with a focal or tubular stenosis and is the least common type in less than 5% of patients. Coronary tortuosity is also often seen in SCAD patients and when severe, may correlate with likelihood of recurrence. Point two, SCAD should be treated conservatively when possible, but it is important to watch for early, clinically significant progression and intervene when indicated. Most SCAD heals spontaneously, and experience has shown that if this patient is clinically stable with TIMI 2-3 flow and does not have high-risk anatomy defined as left main or severe proximal multivessel involvement, a conservative approach has a better outcome than PCI, which can be fraught with complications, generally due to iatrogenic extension of the dissection. However, if at presentation or during the course of hospitalization, there is poor coronary blood flow, TIMI 0 to 1, and or there's hemodynamic instability, revascularization with PCI or cabbage must be considered. This flow diagram in the recent 2020 Jack State of the Art Review article by, on SCAD by Dr. Sharon Hayes summarizes this approach. It is extremely important to emphasize that SCAD patients must be observed in hospital for approximately five days since dissections can extend and have grave complications, including malignant arrhythmias, cardiogenic shock, and death. Recurrent severe chest pain, arrhythmias, or hemodynamic instability which occurs in about 15% of patients, warrants urgent repeat coronary angiography and revascularization as indicated. What constitutes conservative therapy? Well, certainly it includes observation and initiation of certain medications with the goal of relieving symptoms, preventing immediate complications and recurrence of SCAD. However, there are no evidence-based guidelines. Antiplatelet therapy is generally advised, but exactly what antiplatelet therapy is a controversial divergent practice for which there is no consensus at present. Low-dose aspirin is usually agreed upon, but there's a lot of debate about dual antiplatelet therapy. Some experts suggest this for a few weeks to months after the acute event, while others go with ASA alone, or if contraindications or intolerability, then no antiplatelet therapy. Of course, if PCI has been performed, then DAPT is administered according to guidelines. ACE or ARBs can also be used according to guidelines if there's reduced EF. Beta blockers are also advised, especially if there's hypertension, because they may reduce recurrent SCAD, which occurs in around 20%. Calcium channel blockers or nitrates can also be used, generally in the outpatient setting, to manage chronic chest pain 
which not infrequently occurs and is thought to be related to healing or possibly microvascular dysfunction, although that's also controversial. Statins are not routinely administered in contrast to their routine use in the secondary prevention of atherosclerotic disease. And they're only advised according to primary prevention guidelines in the presence of hyperlipidemia. Systemic hormones, specifically estrogen and progesterone, should be avoided. Similarly, thrombolytics are discouraged, although depending on readiness of accessibility to a diagnostic and geographic center, there exists some controversy. Point three, SCAD may have precipitating and associated factors. Importantly, fibromuscular dysplasia, otherwise known as FMD, is common in SCAD patients. This is the central illustration from the Jack Review, which ties together nicely the precipitating or triggering and associated factors that have been observed in SCAD patients. Triggers include extreme stress. Physical stress associated with intense exercise is reported in about 20 to 30% of patients and emotional stress in about 50%. Emotional stressors are more common in women and physical stressors are more often seen in men. Female sex hormones have been implicated given the predominance of women affected and its occurrence in pregnancy. However, SCAD can also affect women who are nulloperous and postmenopausal. Conclusive evidence is also lacking regarding the use of exogenous hormones in the risk of SCAD. Vasoconstrictor medications have been considered potential precipitants. Maneuvers which significantly increase intrathoracic and intravascular pressure, such as severe straining during Valsalva or weightlifting, are also considered potential precipitants. The most commonly associated disease condition is FMD and can be found in approximately 50% of SCAD patients, depending on which series. This can occur in any arterial bed, although femoral, renal, and cervical are the most common. Other vascular abnormalities are also seen, including aneurysms, dissections, and vascular dilatations and tortuosity. Because of this common association, it is recommended that screening for vascular abnormalities be done in all SCAD patients, preferably with CTA of head to pelvis. Connective tissue diseases with a specific genetic etiology are relatively uncommon in SCAD patients, occurring in only 5 to 8%. In these patients, a medical genetics consultation and testing is definitely indicated. But in general, unless there are physical or historical findings, such as a strong family history, it is not recommended as the yield is low. Hypertension occurs in about 30% of SCAD patients and may be associated with FMD, particularly of the renal arteries. About 5 to 18% of patients with SCAD have it in the peripartum period. And as mentioned, it is the most common cause of MI during pregnancy. The majority of pregnancy-associated SCAD occurs postpartum within the first week and may have a more severe clinical presentation with impaired LV function, shock, left main, and multivessel dissections. Older maternal age at first pregnancy, multiparity, preeclampsia, and a history of infertility treatments have been reported to have a higher prevalence in SCAD patients. Nonspecific associated factors that have been reported include idiopathic vasospasm and systemic inflammation. Migraines are reported to occur in up to 40% of SCAD patients. Recently, several associated gene candidates have been identified in multicenter international GWAS studies of SCAD patients, but there is no single specific SCAD gene mutation. And the current thinking is that SCAD is most likely a complex polygenetic syndrome 
with manifestation impacted by the immediate environment. Of course, this continues to be an active area of research. Point four, chest pain after SCAD is common and can continue for many months and fortunately usually does not represent a recurrence. However, differentiating ischemic and non-ischemic etiologies is a major clinical challenge. A proposed approach is shown here, utilizing a combination of non-invasive functional and anatomic testing based on the acuity and the nature of the symptoms and prioritizing accurate diagnosis and relief of those symptoms while also minimizing risk of iatrogenic harm. Early on, rehospitalization and reinvestigations are frequent because of recurrent chest pain with requisite troponin and serial ECG assessments to exclude ACS. Since there is increased risk of iatrogenic dissection in these patients, avoidance of repeat coronary angiography is recommended unless symptoms are associated with objective findings of ischemia and or instability. A key point is that while a non-invasive approach with CTA is not advised at initial ACS presentation due to inability to see dissection planes readily, it can be useful in the assessment of recurrent chest pain, especially early on after the acute SCAD episode, or to assess healing, especially in medically managed patients with proximal to mid-vessel dissections, i.e. of high risk, particularly when cessation of antiplatelet therapy is being contemplated. An example is shown here of a CTA from a 32-year-old postpartum SCAD patient involving left main and LED, showing LED intramural hematoma at day three of admission, seen in the upper panel. Repeat CTA at day 10, displayed in the lower panel, showed healing of the LAD noted by the arrows with interval resolution of the intramural hematoma. However, limitations of cardiac CTA imaging include reduced spatial resolution and difficulty in visualizing smaller caliber mid to distal dissections. Also radiation exposure in this younger population and the risk of false positive findings driving invasive investigations are of concern. Point five, SCAD patients experience a life-changing event with their SCAD episode. They often describe it as life after SCAD. They require and benefit from cardiovascular rehabilitation and dedicated outpatient follow-up. Cardiac rehab in SCAD patients has been shown to be safe and beneficial in improving chest pain, exercise capacity, psychosocial well-being, and cardiovascular event outcomes. Failure of referral to cardiac rehab programs was the most frequently cited cause for why SCAD patients don't enroll. Most SCAD patients should avoid extreme endurance training, elite competitive sports, and vigorous exertion in extreme temperatures. They should also avoid lifting heavy objects that require straining. But it's difficult to set specific weight limits because patients have varying baseline aerobic capacities and strength. The best approach is individualization of recommendations guided by the patient's individual performance during participation in cardiac rehab. That said, we usually recommend not exceeding 30 pounds of lifting as a rule of thumb. SCAD is associated with high levels of psychological distress, including anxiety, depression, and PTSD. In general, after an MI, women are more greatly affected, and this is even more true in SCAD patients, likely due to the uncertainty, confusion, and mixed messages around the diagnosis as well as guidance about what exactly to do. 
lack of secondary prevention options also leads to a sense of loss of health-related control, since many women have been leading a heart-healthy lifestyle, doing everything right, and, quote, it still happened to me, providing treatment, referral, and support, including peer support groups, is critically important to recovery from SCAD. A unique feature of SCAD is the female predominance and therefore the associated impact of reproductive and gynecologic issues, including an increased likelihood of menorrhagia if undapped, avoidance of hormonal containing preparations for contraception and what to use, and the possibility of pregnancy-associated increased risk of recurrence. And thus, the recommendation is generally for avoidance of pregnancy. All of these are issues that cardiologists are not generally used to dealing with and for which we have no hard evidence base. Thus, they're best managed in a specialty, often multidisciplinary clinic setting. Long-term follow-up is also essential because enrollment in research trials and registries can be accessed and certainly is encouraged. In summary, we have touched on the essential factors and major issues regarding SCAD. Although much of the data amassed to date is observational and many questions remain, we do know that SCAD is a complex, multifactorial vascular disease entity occurring primarily in women, and that acutely, the accurate diagnosis and following a conservative management strategy with careful observation and monitoring for deterioration and intervention when necessary can improve outcomes. Recognition of stress triggers and that associated factors such as hypertension, fibromuscular dysplasia or FMD, migraines, may portend increased risk of recurrence, and that treatment with beta blockers potentially may reduce the risk of recurrence. Avoidance of invasive coronary angiography in favor of CTA or stress testing is recommended for follow-up evaluation of the commonly experienced chronic chest pain syndrome that SCAD patients have. Referral to cardiac rehab to regain confidence in physical activity and mental well-being along with long-term follow-up in specialty clinics familiar with SCAD patients with access to enrollment in research programs are the keys to improving outcomes and quality of life for our SCAD patients. Thank you for your attention, and we look forward to answering your questions. Thank you very much, Sharon. Great overview on fascinating disorder. We're very lucky to have two really internationally recognized experts on SCAD, and we have a number of questions we'd like to go through in the next 15 minutes. Jackie, as Sharon well illustrated, SCAD, by definition, is a non-atherosclerotic cause for myocardial infarction. Traditionally, our preventive strategies for atherosclerotic heart disease are medications like dual antiplatelet therapy, statins, ACE inhibitors. Can you comment on some of these typical preventative therapies we use in atherosclerotic heart disease and how they apply to our SCAD patient? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's an excellent video and talk by Sharon. Congratulations. Thank you, Sharon. And as Sharon has alluded to, there's unfortunately no RCT, no randomized trials really addressing the use of any antiquated therapy or beta blockers or statins or ACE inhibitors in our standard SCAD patients. So for many years, our recommendation, even you know, per the AHA scientific statements and the ESC statements, are really based upon extrapolation from the atherosclerotic MI data. So what are the current recommendations? Well, generally, yeah, aspirin is used 
but we don't know what is the duration of therapies necessary. And in terms of adding a P2Y12 inhibitor, so clopidogrel or ticagrelor, typically be clopidogrel, there is clearly no supportive RCT for that, but many of us feel that, you know, because there's potential intimal disruption in a proportion of patients with SCAD, that they would benefit from having the additional antiplatelet strategy with P2Y12 inhibitor. So generally, we would use clopidogrel for a short duration, be it for one to three months until their ischemic type of symptoms resolve. In terms of beta blocker therapy, likewise, there's no RCT data supporting that. In our post hoc analyses from our SCAT registry, we found that the use of beta blocker was associated with a reduction of recurrent SCAT by about two-thirds. So we do suggest long-term use of beta blocker. And unfortunately, a lot of patients, a lot of these women are not tolerating beta blockers because of a lot of fatigue and symptoms related to, you know, bradycardia, et cetera. So generally, they're on very low dose of beta blockade. And in fact, to address the issue about uncertainty of the use of death and beta blocker, we are hoping to, we actually submitted a um, proposal for grants to CIHR in, in the U.S. grants uh, to support a randomized trial to look at DAP versus single-integrated therapy and beta blocker versus no beta blocker in a two-by-two factorial design trial called the Battle SCAT study. Hopefully, we'll garner some interest in terms of supporting that RCT to address this very important question. So, at the meantime, so what we suggest is that, yes, patients should be on aspirin post and probably the addition of clopidogrel if they can tolerate it without bleeding issues for at least one to three months. Beta blocker use generally, yes, we should recommend that. In terms of other agents like statins, generally not, because we know that um, SCAD is not an atherosclerotic issue. So unless patients have pre-existing dyslipidemia, we generally do not continue statin therapy or even start patients on that. In terms of ACE inhibitor, we would only start that if patients have wall motion and severe LV dysfunction. Generally, the EF is less than 50%. Okay, well, thanks a lot, Jacqueline. Any comments? And Sharon, what do you specifically do with regards to Plavix? Actually, I get the patients mostly in the clinic afterwards, and I see them in follow-up. So they have generally come to me already on clopidogrel is the most common, and aspirin, of course, baby aspirin. But a lot of them, you know, these are young women. A lot of them are still menstruating. A lot of them are now anemic because they're, they've got menorrhagia, you know, so this is a challenge. And actually, when I was at Mayo, we didn't routinely give dual antiplatelet therapy. We just dismissed patients on baby aspirin. So there is that, you know, controversial aspect of it. So there's no right answer just yet because, as Jackie said, we don't have the RCTs to do that. So I think your clinical acumen would say, yeah, it's probably reasonable to dismiss on a dual antiplatelet therapy, certainly if they end up with a PCI, and that is about 15%. You know, that can happen. In those very hemodynamically unstable patients, they do need to be revascularized. But if there's no stenting there, maybe you could put them on dual antiplatelet therapy for a month, at most three months, and certainly stop it. So when I see them in the clinic, it's usually within a month or three months, and then I say, yeah, I think you're okay just now on baby aspirin. A point about the beta blocker is that a lot of them have a hard time tolerating, as Jackie said, too. But I have found, and you know, I think bisoprolol in very low doses seems to be one of the best tolerated, more better than metoprolol. I'd like to hear what you think about that, too, Jackie. But bisoprolol, like at 2.5, you know, try to get it up to five if you can, milligrams. But, you know, most of them can tolerate that and they don't have the side effects. And it's good to have some in there as protection. And they feel better psychologically because now you're saying, you know, the whole issue of recurrence worried about recurrence, happens in 15 to 20%. But yes, now you are actually, you are forearmed and 
forewarned and forearmed. You have the knowledge of what to watch for. As well, you're on medications that are protecting you, the aspirin and the beta blocker at a low dose. And, and that seems to be a good uh, combination. Okay. Well, yeah. thanks for those uh, very insightful comments. Uh, still on the management for the community cardiologists out in Canada, when these patients have acute coronary syndrome, the pressure is same as in New Brunswick as it is in Nova Scotia, as in BC. There's pressure on getting people out of hospital. I was struck by the comment that Sharon made that when a patient has SCAD, they should be hospitalized for five days. Traditionally, a patient with an ACS, PCI, not infrequently, they're discharged within, well, 48 hours, certainly, but even sometimes within 36 hours. Can you comment on why these patients should be in hospital for five days? And is that your practice in British Columbia? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So when we look at the Canadian SCAT study, where we enrolled 750 patients prospectively throughout Canada, the median duration of hospitalization was four days. So you are right. Generally, we do keep patients longer after SCAD. And that's because, you know, these patients are unlike the standard atherosclerotic MI patients who are treated with stents. And once you're stented, you know, you're discharged home, you do well. But in patients with SCAD, they are at risk for extension of the SCAD uh, lesion even during hospitalization. So the risk of recurrent MI during hospitalization is about 5%. That typically involves either proximal or, or distal propagation of the intramural hematoma. So I think for the SCAT population who we are not treating with stent, we should observe them a little bit longer. So I generally say three to five days. In patients who are postpartum, for instance, where gosh, they have proximal vessel involvement or even left main, you know, and if they're not treated with cabbage or bypass surgery, in these patients, I would observe it even longer than five days. In patients where the scat artery affected is, let's say it's a, a distal vessel, like an obtuse marginal, a distal RPEA, for instance, I might shorten the three days. So I think, you know, there is a bit of clinical acumen in play here. And so it depends on the anatomy. It depends on, you know, the extent of the dissection. And so generally, three to five days is very reasonable. Okay, well, thanks. That's great. I'd like to move on now. You mentioned about the associated uh, fibromuscular dysplasia, which I think is a fascinating disorder. And certainly your recommendation, I've asked you this a few years ago, about one, should all our patients have a CT angiogram from head to pelvis? And two, what happens if we do find a dissection in a, say, for example, a carotid artery that is asymptomatic? So the question is, how often do you encounter simultaneous dissections if you do the scan, and then what? So you found it, now what? So when patients present with an acute SCAD event, oftentimes, as Sharon alluded to, there is a storm of emotional trigger or physical trigger. So in rare cases, we have seen that because of the acute storm, they presented both with a simultaneous carotid dissection and a coronary dissection. I must say, this is very rare. This is less than 1%. A lot of times when we, when a patient presents with SCAT and we image them while they're in the hospital, we will find, uh, you know, they've actually had a prior dissection in the carotid vessels. And that's not that rare. So that will be probably somewhere in the range of maybe 3 4%. And um, when we talk about, well, do we, where do we screen for other vascular territories? I mean, yes, it's the look for FMD, which we've seen in 50 to 70% of patients. And yes, we would routinely, and we do still suggest routinely screening with a CAT scan with a supervasculature in the iliac vessels and in the pelvis for the renal vessels. So we would screen that. 
And uh, it's not just to look for prior dissection, it's to also assess for the presence of aneurysm. So we find that about 15 to 20% of patients with SCAD actually have an intracranial aneurysm that may have implications in terms of, you know, need for management, like clipping the aneurysm, for instance. So I think that certainly that should be pursued. If you see a prior carotid dissection, for instance, the question then is raised, what is the cause of that concomitant carotid dissection? Is it related to FMD or is it related to other vascular conditions? So if I see that, then I would certainly refer the patients to a neurologist for follow-up and image other territories as well, and probably even refer a patient to a genetics clinic to assess for, is there additional problems on top of, say, just FMD? Is there other vascular EDS, for instance, or Marfan syndrome or other connective tissue disorder that might be accounting for these multi-territory vascular disease. So it's kind of like the cumulative evidence and you have to individualize for each patient, but you do have to do the imaging to know how far you have to go beyond. And as Jackie's alluding to, to be able to risk stratify as much as possible to guide the patient in managing recurrences or dissections, aneurysms, complications and other vascular beds. Absolutely. Yeah. How often do you actually refer patients to medical genetics, Jackie, would you say? Yeah, so I, I would say nowadays it would be roughly about 5 to 10% of cases. And we would refer patients who are typically very young, you know, the postpartum women who there are no other reasons to explain for that. And also patients who've had a family history of, say, SCAD or other aneurysms or other dissection other territories or patients with family members who have FMD. So those are the typical patients that we would refer to. We have some interesting findings from our exome sequencing that hopefully will be published over the next few weeks that will address some of that too. So we have an interesting question from the audience. Uh, a 40-year-old otherwise healthy female with no cardiovascular factors presents with an ACS. She's cathed at a cathing hospital. The patient's transferred to a hospital for cath and is sent back the same day and said, her coronary angiogram is normal, so the label is Minoka or myocardial infarction with no obstructive coronary artery disease. Given what we've less heard, and particularly if we see a female under 50 with a quotes Minoka, how far should we pursue other investigations? And I'm thinking specifically here of uh, CMR. How far should the community cardiologist go to look at other potential etiologies rather than the label of Minoka? I think there's no universal answer to that question. And I think a lot depends on the actual Minoka diagnosis and the angiographic findings, because there's Minoka and there's Minoka. There's Minoka where the coronary arteries are perfectly normal, and there's Minoka where you see 20 to 30% stenosis, for instance. And I think we should address these very differently. If you see these, say, you know, less than 50% stenosis, somewhere in the range of 30 to 40%, and it corresponds to a wall motion abnormality, uh, where there's hypokinesis or akinesis subtended by that artery, I think you need to investigate further, right? So in the HARP study, which was recently published, in 85% of the cases, the use of either OCT imaging or MRI actually allowed us to find out what the cause of the minoca was. So if you, on the coronary angiogram, identify some degree of coronary stenosis with the corresponding hypokinesis, I think OCT should be done in that particular setting, even before the patient leaves the cath lab. So we can see what is that, an atherosclerotic cause 
or is that a SCAD or other etiology? But if let's say a patient have perfectly normal coronaries and you really could not see anything on the angiogram and they've had a troponin elevation and now you're stuck stretching your head. Well, is this tachycephal? Is this myocarditis? Is this, is this some, you know, subtle, very subtle SCAD that we couldn't identify? Is this basal spasm? Then I think MRI is very, very useful in this situation to really differentiate between an MI cost versus a non-MI cost, right? And so, so if you see on the MRI, delayed gadolinium enhancement that indicates an MI, then you would go back. Okay, what territory was that? Let me comb through and look at the angiogram again. Did I miss a scat or, you know, did I miss something else? So I think, um, you know, MRI would be very helpful, but I think the angiographer performing the angiogram should actually make the recommendation, you know, when he or she finished the angiogram procedure, say, well, what is the further imaging that needs to be done? Is it an intracoronary imaging or is that an MRI, for instance? Uh, just to further that, uh, another question from the audience. Uh, you have a, a young lady, maybe atypical chest pain, mildly elevated troponin levels. You get her cath, and you don't see typical SCAD, but you see very tortuous vessels that may be associated with FMD or even just a, what I call tortuous vessels. Any comments on that? Uh, it's not looking like an, a normal coronangiogram, but you don't see any specific lesion. Yeah, so I mean, I would say that um, there are different degrees of coronary tortuosity. Yes, coronary tortuosity has been linked to SCAT, but we also see a lot of tortuosity in patients with just FMD alone or patients with underlying hypertension. Generally, you know, if a patient has minoca, find anything on the coronaries, I would, during the angiography, perform a non-selective imaging of the renal iliacs to see is there overlying, is there underlying FMD that might be accounting for something. So that would give me additional findings already. And just the coronary tortuosity itself, I think it won't change my management per se, but I think it would help me think about, well, how likely is it? Is it FMD causing that? And, you know, should I be imaging during the cath lab procedure itself? Um, okay. In our last couple of minutes here, I'd like to just clarify a very common scenario. So the patient is diagnosed with SCAD, sent home, and a commonly encountered situation for the cardiologist is the patient presents back, maybe not, maybe within a week or two, with recurrent chest pain. Of course, you're consulted immediately from the emergency. And I like to bring two scenarios. They have a normal or an unchanged ECG, normal cardiac markers. And what do you do with the patient? How, what's your approach if they do have elevated cardiac markers? We know up to 10, 15% can have a recurrence within, within patients with SCAD. So what if they do have elevated cardiac markers and new ECG changes? Jackie, how do you approach this not infrequent scenario, which can be very... Yeah, I you're, you're bang on right there, David, that recurrent you know, presentation with chest pains and even component elevation, it is very frequent post-SCAT. So number one, if the patient represents the ER and the troponin is not elevated, I would definitely not pursue further in terms of repeat imaging with coronary angiography. In a patient who presents with further elevation of the troponin, you know, I think you got to just take into consideration, well, how much higher is the troponin? How long was the duration of pain? Is there ischemic, you know, ongoing ischemic changes? Or was it a self-limited event, say, that lasted, you know, a few minutes and then that resolved? Because we, we know that there are issues related to performing coronary angiography in terms of risk of iatrogenic 
catheter-induced dissection. So I'm a bit more reluctant in terms of repeating a coronary angiogram in a setting where patients are not having ongoing ischemia or worrisome features on ECG, right? Or a troponin that is just marginally elevated but not tremendously elevated, right? So in, in the softer types of recurrent presentation, I would probably just say, you know what, let's intensify the beta blockade and let's okay. monitor. But in patients who clearly have high-risk features with ongoing ischemia, prolonged duration of chest pain, marked elevation of troponin, those are the ones that would repeat an, a coronary angiogram again. Can you just clarify, uh, so the cath, our interventionists, I'm sure you are, are somewhat reluctant to do another procedure on a young lady who has SCAD because of the friability of the vessels and the concern that they may actually aggravate the dissection. So some are adopting CT angiography, but I find that that hasn't got excellent spatial resolution. So you, a lot of these females will have small arteries that are involved. Can you just comment on the role of CT angiogram? I mean, it is a nice test to do rather than invasive procedure on someone who's had a SCAD. Yeah, I think that's a great question. The issue with SCAD is that about 90% of SCAD affects mid to distal vessels. And very often in smaller vessels where the spatial resolution of CTA is just not adequate to look for it. So unless a patient had a more proximal or mid-vessel, large vessel involvement, a CTA would not pick it up. So it really depends. I, I generally would only do a CTA, not as a first-line imaging for patients freshly diagnosed with SCAD. In patients who I'm considering recurrent SCAT. The SCAT originally affected a large enough vessel and they represented with a recurrent MI. I might then consider doing a CTA in those scenarios. Okay, perfect. And just to kind of end off here, these patients are generally fairly active, healthy. And as the title said, doctor, what happened to me? They really truly do want to know what happened to them. And not infrequently, they enjoy running or doing competitive sports. And now they're use the word petrified, to go back to physical activities because they're now scared of tearing another artery. Can you just comment on how do you recommend patients, particularly the athletes or ones who like running or competitive sports, what do you recommend to these patients specifically in terms of getting back into a routine? Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a challenging question, but a very, very important, very pertinent question. The key is we want a lot of our SCAP patients to go back to having an active physically active life, yeah. uh, but we don't want them to be pushing themselves to the extreme of being participating in competitive sports. So we don't want them to be running marathons or doing Ironmans, you know, <laughs> some of our patients are like that. We want to get them to scale back. You know, I want to get them to be able to go back to running, not at a fast pace, and we want to get them to cycling, doing regular physical activities, but without pushing themselves overboard, especially doing activities that involves a lot of heavy isometric valsalva type activities. And, and Sharon alluded to the fact that we, we don't really know what the proper threshold would be, but we generally tell our patients, you know, yeah, if you want to get back to doing some weightlifting, do more repetitions with lower levels of weights rather than using very heavy weights. In terms of aerobic type activities, I always encourage patients to go back to doing what they were able to do previously without going through the very extreme sport. So don't run a marathon. Don't try and compete in a 10K run, for instance. Do it at a slow pace. And you still get the benefit of physical activity without incurring the risk of exposing to marked elevation in, in the arterial shear stress of valsalva type activities by going to the extreme. 
That's great uh, pragmatic advice. And just uh, lastly, pregnancy, SCAD, do you recommend never getting pregnant again? This is still a very controversial area, and um, I think there's not sufficient data out there saying what, you know, once you have a SCAD, if you get pregnant again, what is your risk of SCAD? The larger series, you know, and the newer ones might be up to like 20 patients. Um, so we don't really know what is your risk and that there is a definite risk, right? If you have had SCAD previously and you, you're pregnant and you have a peripartum SCAD, we know that that SCAD event is going to incur significant amount of damage to your myocardium, et cetera, and it's going to be a large invite, it's going to be a large aggressive type of SCAD. So I take a pretty conservative approach. I would tell all my SCAD patients that they should not get pregnant again, but it's all going to depend on them because some of most of our SCAD patients have had, you know, two or three children already. So, you know, they don't want to expose their current their children to the risk of losing their mom. But I've had SCAD patients where they really, really want to have um, additional children. And so in cases like that, you know, all we can do is support them, even though I advise them not to become pregnant. If they do become pregnant, we do our best in terms of make, making sure their blood pressure is well controlled and that they are followed by, you know, OBGYN and the cardiac team um, to support them through the pregnancy. Okay. Well, listen, this has been a great discussion. I'd like to really thank Dr. Sharon Mava and Dr. Jack Vinsaw for their valuable insights and pragmatic clinical perspectives on our evolving understanding on the management of this really fascinating disorder of SCAD and its predilection for young and generally otherwise healthy ladies. Thank you for joining us today for Perspectives in Clinical Cardiology. Visit ccs.ca for future programming. Download five key take-home messages and register for future programs. Thank you to the New Brunswick Heart Center for their support of this program.